time we're done. So, Parshat Vayechi. We're going to finish Sefer Breshit this Shabbos. <coughs> Never really finished Sefer Breshit, but we're going to conclude our annual reading of Sefer Breshit and learning of Sefer Breshit. Um, and, you know, Shabbos afternoon, we're going to get started on Sefer Shmot. Uh, Parsha Vayechi is, is, a, is a really intense Parsha. Um, it ends with this sort of gloom hanging in the air because Yaakov dies, and Yosef dies, the brothers die, and we know what's raiding around the corner. And it's not good. Right? They're headed into a really dark place. And it's interesting that Yaakov, at the end of his life, um, gives brachot to all of his sons, gives extra brachot to Menashe Ephraim. But if you look carefully at some of these brachot, and we're going to take a look at one, it's a little bit challenging. Because Yaakov starts off, you know, Ruvain Bechori Ata'a you know, on the one hand, you're, you're my Bechor, my firstborn. You're the, the, the beginning of my, uh, I don't know, mission or initial vigor. The firstborn, you know, there's a strange Rashi there. Yaakov only had one seed. He was never uh, Kerry, Balkeri. And Yeter Seit, Vieter Oz, you have so much extra strength, leadership. You could have been so much. But Pachas Kamai Maltotar. You're like impetuous like water, you know? And Yaakov is referring to an event that happened sometime earlier. We're going to get into that. Mase Bilha, as it's called. We'll get into what that is. And however you look at that event, Reuven messed up. Big time. But Yaakov never gives him a hard time about it. And now, on his deathbed, he gives him Tocha. And we know Tocha is a mitzvah. The Rambam quotes it as worthy of mitzvah in Ilchodeir, in the Rambam, right? And, um, and one wouldn't expect to find this here. So what's interesting about this is, you know, generally when we think of tochacha, we think of the idea that someone did something wrong and you're telling them you're wrong. You know, you walk through the streets and, uh, you know, some friend of yours, obviously from a different yeshiva, it's like smoking a cigarette in the Rover Square, and you realize it's terrible, it's dangerous to your health, you checked with the Surgeon General, it's still true. So you want to go over and say, look, you know, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. You know, maybe it's a chelot shavah, it's tochah. But there is an additional, it's not another way, it's just an additional way of looking at tochah, which is a tochah, reproving somebody, telling someone off, is, is not necessarily about you're doing something wrong from the perspective of there's some issue or some violation, you're pursuing a path that's mistaken. You're, you're, you're making a mistake here. You're on a road that's headed into darkness. I care about you. I want you to change. And this very often creates a dilemma. And I want to give you an extreme example. Okay? What would you do if somebody came to you and they shared with you information that was so beyond your imagination, it was so crazy that you didn't think anybody would believe you and it would be foolish almost to share it with anybody. On the other hand, it would be criminal not to share it. What would you do? And I'll give you an example. Many of us are going to Poland in a few weeks. Um, This happened in at least three different homes that I know about. Um, Aubrey Hirsch actually has a podcast on this. And the most famous of them was 
um, Rav Moshe Chaim Lau, who was the father, Shem Yikom Damo, of um, Rav Lau, who was the chief rabbi of Israel, actually the father of the current, Rav Yisrael Lau was the father of the current chief rabbi of Israel. And he was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. And uh, as well as to Rabbi Silman, who was the Rav of, um, uh, the name is, uh, second, I forget, Grobov, which was in eastern Poland. Fellow knocks on his door one evening in early 1942. 1942, the Jews of Poland were already not in a good place. They were in ghettos. They imagined this was as bad as it could be, but they still had no idea what was coming on so many levels. And he opens the door and he sees a fellow he doesn't recognize. And the fellow says to him, Rabbi, I've come to you from the Olam Ha'emes. I'm coming from Olam Haba. Right, the world of truth. I imagine the Rav looked at him and thought, Nebuch, he's probably lost his mind. And he says, I've managed to get over 70 kilometers. They're killing all of them. In January of, I believe it was January of 1942, the Nazis began murdering people in the death camp of Chelmno. Chelmno is one of six death camps. Um, what made the death camp different, among other things, was that there was no work camp. And because there was no work camp, there was no need for a selection. There was no selection. They took you off the trains, and they murdered you. Right? There were six death camps. Chelno, Sobibor, Auschwitz, Majdanek, Treblinka, and Belzitz. And in all of these places, they were designed to efficiently murder the Jewish people. Right, if you got to Treblinka, you got off the train, um, they stripped you, they robbed you, they looted you, um, they shaved you, they gassed you, and they burned you. The whole process took less than an hour. Right? We're going to be in Treblinka longer than they were. Now, there was a small group, and nobody survived. I mean, they murdered everybody. But there was a small group that they actually kept alive, usually for three months at a time. They were called the Zunder Commando. And the Zunder Command, their job was a horrible job. For many, many years, none of them would talk because they, they just couldn't bring themselves the shame that they felt in what the Nazis made them do. Their job was to dispose of the bodies. So in Chelno, where most people were murdered in carbon monoxide vans, they would take the bodies out of the vans. They would continue the looting process under the watchful eyes they were heavily guarded. Then they would take the bodies to a mass grave in the forest and they would burn them. And they had no hope of escape. But there were at least four instances that we know of where people escaped. And this was one of them, right? Yaakov Grzynski um, actually shares his story with Rosilman. And for an hour, Rosilman listens to this story. They're killing them. They're, they're gassing them, and then they're taking the bodies and burning them in a pit. All the villages that have been taken to work camps, that's where they're taking them. He says, I buried an entire city. I buried my family. I buried my relatives. One of the survivors tells about how he saw his wife and children. They're murdering everybody. Now, you're a rough. 
and the Rabbanim, by the way, were the first ones to discover this in Poland and in Lithuania. What do you do with that information? What do you do? First of all, if you decide you want to tell, who are you going to tell? You know, Chelmno was about 70 kilometers from Lodz. Lodz was the largest ghetto in the area. There were about 150,000 Jews in Lodz. It was hermetically sealed. They had no access to communications. If they were caught with any form of communications, they were murdered on the spot. They had no real leadership anymore. Most of the leadership had been destroyed. Who are you going to tell? And even if you could get it out to the world, who's going to listen to you? And even if you could get it to somebody, who's going to believe you? And then, of course, there's a question of, should you tell? You know, a delegation goes to the Yudmilat of the Lodge ghetto. They managed a few of them to, 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 to escape and to get into Lodge. And they managed to get an audience with Chaim Rukowski, who was the prince of the ghetto. Lodge is a whole unique ghetto, but that's for another time. And uh, these Rabbanim brought these two escapees from Chelno, who made it to Pietrakov and wherever else, and they came to the Lodge ghetto, and, and they met with the head of the Yudenrat. And their goal was to get the Yudenrat, this Jewish council, to convince the Nazis to change their policy. The theory was, in order for the Nazis to accomplish this thing, they were dependent on secrecy. If they knew that the Jews knew, they'd be afraid of a revolt, a rebellion, and they would change their policies. And Lumkowski's reaction was, I know, this is not news to me, and you have to keep this secret because you'll so panic. And the correct response is we need to build more workplaces. We need to encourage more people to involve for work, because Arbet macht frei. The Nazis won't kill the people who are working. He actually believed this. And the Rabbanim, it's clear, had a very different opinion on this. Now, if you actually heard a story like this, and if you were convinced, um, Rav, Rav, Rav Lau was convinced that this was a true story, I mean, I guess if you heard this and you looked into a person's eyes, and uh, actually in Ravlau's case, I believe, oh no, that's triple a different story, and he calls his son Naftali. Naftali Lavi was, um, he really saved Yisrael Lau, would later become chief rabbi. I actually knew uh, Naftali Lavi, he changed his name to Lavi because he was a consul general from Medina Israel. I uh, was in New York for a few years, I grew up, he was in our show, and uh, passed away a number of years ago. And um, he told his son Naftali to gather together some of his, some of the leaders of Pietrakov, including some of the members of the Jewish Communal Council from before the war. And he gathered them together. And one of these survivors who had reached him, these escapees, um, tells his story again. And Rav Lau now takes notes on the story. Now, the, the notebook that he had on this survived the war. So we have the accounting of what happened during that meeting. And he writes there that everybody sat there and listened. Nobody moved a muscle, nobody said a word. He could feel the terror filling the room. Do you understand? You're discovering what they're really doing. Put aside for the moment the terror that you're experiencing. Like they're, they're collecting you and taking you to murder you. It's just beyond imagination. What do you do with that information? And i be honest with you, most people, it would break you. And you really understand what the Nazis are doing. But these Rabbanim are determined to get this word out. And no one will listen to them. They managed to spread it in some of the ghettos. People can't believe it's true. Some people say it's just local. They're getting rid of the villages in the area. Because you can't imagine that they would do such a thing. 
And Rosilman actually finds a creative way. He sends a message to the Sachachava Rebbe, who was one of the great Hasidic Rebbe's and has a tremendous influence and actually had an underground network to help people escape in the Warsaw Ghetto, which was the largest Jewish community in Poland. And it's heyday, there were almost 500,000 Jews, half a million Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto in a space that really could fit about 20,000. And um, he sends him a message that my Aunt Esther from Megillah Street number seven, apartment number four, is coming to visit. And of course, the Shachat understood that he needs to look up Megillah's Esther. And if you look in Perak Zion, Pasuk Dalet, in Megillah's Esther, you can look this up, right? We have been sold over, to be killed and destroyed. And if we had only been sold into slavery, says Esther, I would have been silent. But we're going to be murdered and destroyed. And the Sochachever understands what Rav Silman is telling him. And he said, we don't know exactly, we know exactly when this note was written in January of uh, 1942. We don't know when the Sochachever got it, but we know that a few months later, because there are accounts of this, the Sochachever sends a note back. And he says, you should be strong, and you should listen to grandfather's composition, right? Opus number 24, you know, symphony number 25. The grandfather Zakin is David Amelech, and he's referring to Tehillim Berk of Dalad, which is Gam Ki Elech Begeit Salmavet Lo We we are walking in the shadow of the valley of death, and we have no fear of evil because Hashem is with us. And how you interpret that is just beyond the purview of this discussion. And if Silman refuses to give up, and eventually there's a letter that's sent out. Um, it's written in Yiddish, um, and it found its way to the Ringelblum. Uh, archives, which is a, 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 a person in the Warsaw Ghetto who collected everything he could collect and buried it in tombs underground so that one day the world would find out what the Nazis did and eventually was discovered after the war. And so we have a copy of this letter and it talks about exactly, he writes there exactly what is happening. We know that villages, the village of Colin was, you know, the entire town was gathered and taken off somewhere and we don't know what happened to them. And all the other villages in the area the Nazis have, have transported them. We don't know where they've gone. We don't know what happened to them. Now we know. They're being taken to a place called Chelno. They're being taken into the forest. They're being gassed and murdered. It is up to us, all of us, to develop a strategy and figure out what to do. We, 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 do we fight? Do we try to escape? Um, by the way, the, 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 the Rav of Pietrakov, Rav Lau, decides that there's a mitzvah. He has to tell everybody who'll listen. And he spreads the word in ghetto. And because of who his stature, many people believe him. And there are people who escaped into the forest, people who go to the Aryan side and get hidden because they understand what's coming, and he saved hundreds of lives. But the overwhelming majority of them didn't change. So what do you do with that? The risk of seeding panic. When does tochecha become something that should be put off? Now, why do I tell you this story? Because... Because it's clear that Yaakov is giving his son Ruben tochacha. Now, what is he giving him tochacha for? What exactly is he telling him off for? He's telling him off for something called Masa Bilha. Right? Masa Bilha is in Parshat Vayishlach. Okay? It's actually a very interesting detail. Vayi Bishkon Yisrael Baratzahi. Right? They finally, things settle down. 
You know, they've come back there to Israel, right? It's getting... Vayelech Ruvain, Vayishkav et Bilhap Hilegesh Aviv. And Ruvain, you accept this Pasuk, literally, the verb means that he lays with Bila, who was the concubine of his father. Now that's obviously a pretty serious offense. Right? The Gemara says, There are three instances in Tanakh and the Torah where the Gemara says, don't take this literally, that's not what it means. He didn't actually sleep with Bilhah. So the Gemara says, no, he actually moves her bed. Right? Rachel dies. She was the beloved wife of Yaakov. When she dies, they move Yaakov's bed into the tent of Bilhah. Ruvain feels deeply offended and feels the shame of his mother. She's the principal other wife. And that Yaakov doesn't move his bed into her tent is a serious embarrassment to Leah. That's a whole discussion about Yaakov and Leah and Rachel and <coughs> whether we can take Yaakov to task for that. But Reuven is clearly upset. So he, according to Gemara, he moves his father's bed back into Leah's tent. Now you don't do that. You don't go make your parents' bed. It's just that you just don't do that sort of thing. It's not, it's not your place to be in their bedrooms. So the Pasuk says an amazing thing. The Pasuk says, Vayishmai Yisrael. Right? Yaakov hears this. I'm putting aside for the moment when he's called Yisrael and Yaakov and why here it says Vayishmai Yisrael. If you look at a Sefer Torah, okay, there is a break. Like if you take a Koran Tanakh, and if somebody wants to see this, you can come over afterwards, right? The, the line ends in the middle. And then there's a white space to the end of the column. And what's interesting about this is, this is what Chazal call a a, a, a pisk of a pasca, it's a break in the middle of a pasuk. Now those of you laying know there are cantillations under the words, and one of the cantillations is that tnachta. And tnachta is that upside down bell that sig- signals you're in the middle of a pasuk. Right? For example, under the word elokim, bereshit, bara elokim, that's not the end of a pasuk, it's the middle of a pasuk. Right? Etashamayim vedaaret, so pasuk, right? So this is the middle of a pasuk, and the pasuk ends. Very rare to find a pasuk that ends with an etnachta. Then there's this blank space. And then the next pasuk is Yaakov and the children of Yaakov are twelve, and it begins to list the children of Yaakov at the end of his life. Right? Sorry, in Vayishlach. So what does that have to do with it? Well Ruvain moves Bilah's bed, sleeps with Bilah, whatever happens there. Yaakov hears, and then Yaakov Shnemasar. So if Salvechik says Yaakov understands in this moment that Reuven is so upset he's got one foot out the door. If Yaakov says anything it'll push Reuven away. So he doesn't say anything. He just listens. And because Yaakov listens and knows this isn't the time to say it's not the time to give tocha vayu b'nei Yaakov There remain 12 sons nobody leaves. Yishmael left, Esav left, none of the children of Yaakov left. So now finally, at the end of his life, <coughs> Yaakov gives Tokacha. And there is an obvious question here. Why does Yaakov wait? Anybody know how many years Yaakov waits? Rashi points out that if you look carefully, right, at Maseh Bilha, Yaakov was 99 years old. He's now 147, he's on his deathbed. That means he waited 48 years. Why did Yaakov wait 48 years to give Tokha? So Rashi here explains, right? Actually, I'm, that's not true. Ya- Rashi explains this in Dvarim. If you look at the beginning of Sefer Dvarim, right? 
Who else waits a long time to give Tochacha? Anybody remember? Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? These are the things that Moshe spoke to them. Rashi says, right, we looked in the entire Torah, we didn't find a place called Tofa Lavan. doesn't exist. There is no place called Dizahav. Which makes sense, you know, you get to a place. I mean, where were the places the Jewish people were encamped in the desert? How do you describe the place? We have this image of like, they get to her, like there's a, you know, there's, a, there's an encampment, there's a town, it's a town of, there's no town, it's like the middle of the desert. How do you direct a person back then? There's no ways, there's no GPS. Count 14 sand dunes and make a left. Like, what is that? It's not a place. It's a place that's no place. So Rashi says, these are not places, these are events. <coughs> these are events. Dizahav is a place where, what happened? Cheta Ego, golden calf, right? Ego Azahav. Top of Lavan is, 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 is the place where, what happened? Pardon? Pardon? Nope. What was white? Nope. The man. The man was white. The Torah actually describes it in Shalach, right? What was the problem with the man? They complained. That they didn't have enough. They got man from heaven and they're complaining? Moshe Rabbeinu is alluding to the mistakes that they make. He's giving them Torah. Why did he wait 40 years? So Rashi points out, Moshe Rabbeinu only gives them Torah, tells them what before he dies. He learns this from Yaakov. He only gives tocha to those of his children who need tocha right before he's about to die. Amar Ruvain Bni, Ruvain, my son, he says. I'm telling you now, tocha. Why didn't I give you tocha all these years? Rashi, according to the Gemara in Sanhedrin. That you shouldn't leave me be and go to the world of Esav. Can you imagine? Yaakov understands that if he gives Tocha to Reuven, when this happens, he's going to push Reuven into the camp of Esav. The problem with this is, really? Yaakov thinks that Reuven is going to go to the camp of Esav? Let's think about this for a minute. Who is Esav and who is Reuven? Now, I know that we're supposed to look at the Torah, stories in the Torah and imagine that Reuven and Yosef and Binyamin, they're like us, and this one's jealous. But we also, Rav Nevensal talks about that also, often. I once heard Rav Uchtin give a sicha on this topic. You have to take a step back and realize, you're talking about Reuven. You're talking about the sons of Yaakov. These are people who had Ruach HaKodesh, they, they were Nevi'im, they were Tzadikim, they were mind-boggling. They're the Shifte Ka. The name of Reuven sits on the Choshen, on the breastplate, of Aaron, Kohen Agadol. The Kohen Gadol, the name of Reuben, one of the vehicles that achieves Kapar of the Jewish people. Right? There's a Pasuk. Uh, see if I can find it. You remember when Reuben goes to find these mandrakes, he collects these dudaim for, for his mother, for Leah, and then Leah makes a deal with Rachel? You remember that story? The Pasuk says, Vayelech Reuben bimek tzir chitim. Reuben goes during the harvest to get these dudaim. So the Gemara says, why does he need, why does he tell him he goes during the harvest? Anybody remember what the Gemara says? Right? I think Rashi actually quotes this here. To teach you to praise them. It was the time of the harvest. 
even from non-Jews, even knowing that one day this is going to be ours because they didn't promise to us, he doesn't take from the stolen, he won't steal from the fields, he takes from Hefka. In other words, Ruvain, as a principle, would never steal. He's going to go to the world of Esau. Esau is a Kazlan. Yitzchak and the Medrash tells Esau, bring me food, but not from the Geza. Let me not Geza. Esau is, is, feels wronged by Yaakov. He wants to kill him. Reuven is absolutely wronged by Yosef, and he wants to save him. You're talking about two people who are the antithesis of each other. What does this mean? He's going to go to Esau. Right? So, Rav Nevenzel has this Yichah. He talks about this. And he says, the fear here is that Reuven, there are two ways to look at this. One is, you don't even want Reuven thinking, maybe I'd be better off with Esau. He may not actually go to Esau, but thinking, you know, if I was living in the tent of Esau, I wouldn't be getting toka like this. That's not healthy for Reuven. But on a deeper level, right, Yaakov understands. By the way, it may be that Ruvain would have accepted the Tochacha. That's a whole interesting question. You know, the, the, the Mishnah in Perek Elvis and Perek Vav says, you know, there are 48 ways in which nicknames Chachma, in which we achieve Chachma, balance, whatever you want to call that, in which we gain all the Mabah, and one of them is Tochacha. A person should want to receive Tochacha. You should set up mechanisms so that when someone sees you doing something wrong, you create the space where they're able to tell you. That's just healthy. And if I know that, Reuven knows that. But Yaakov nonetheless is nervous about this because even if there's a slight predilection, subconsciously in the mind of Reuven, that might cause him to struggle, this is a dangerous thing. We have no idea where this will go. Now, where does Yaakov get this from, by the way? What would make Yaakov realize that Tochacha is a dangerous thing? Who gets Tochacha and ends up leaving in the wrong direction? Let's think about this. No, uh, Lavan, kind. Not Lavan. No, uh, not kind. Kind gets Tochacha and it's a mess for him. It's too late. Come on. The reason you're not thinking about this, I'm going to confuse you further. The Medrash implies that this person was a tzaddik. Nope. Lot. Lot. It's not even Lot doing it. Lot's shepherds. The Medrash says, right, Klastero, the, the, the countenance of Lot was like the countenance of Avram. And the commentaries explain, this doesn't mean they looked alike. It means there was an energy about Lot, you knew he was from Avram. Now the energy Avram must have had, he was an ish chesed. Must have been incredible to be in his presence. Lot had that. By the way, where does Lot end up? He ends up in stone, right? And what is he doing in stone? When the Malachim come to save him, where do they find him? Anybody know? By the gate. Who sits by the gate of the city? The Bezdin. The judges. Where else do we know that the judge sits by the gate? Obvious. Boaz. Boaz was the Shofet. He sits by the gate. Right? In, in Harabait, there, there was a, 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 the Sanhedrin, there were two Sanhedrin, two high courts, one of them sits by the gates of the Beis Amitash. So Lot is like a dying, he's on a certain level, he came from the tent of Avram. Lot had the potential, Avram thinks Lot is going to be the inheritor of the Jewish people. Can you imagine what a level he must have been on for Avram Avinu to think this is the guy? And Avram, and if you look carefully, and we don't have time, if you look carefully at how Avram gives Tolkien a Lot, it's so subtle. Let there not be an argument. Lot could have just said, what are you talking about? He barely gives him Tolkien. 
He's not even talking about Lot, he's talking about his shepherds. And that Tokacha sends Lot away. And where does he go? He goes to Stom. So it would seem that what this means is that Chazal say, before you give Tokacha, you have to worry about what the consequences can be. Where could this Tokacha go? What could this Tokacha mean? And I will share with you an amazing idea. Um, there's a piece in Masechet Smachot. I'm purposely using this, uh, this Masechta just because it gives me a chance to share something with you. Um, this is, uh, when I was your age, like, this is my favorite shas, right? You could take a Masechta, take it with you, you could probably put it in your pocket. It's unbelievable, right? I wish they'd had this around when I was in Shiva. When I was in Shiva, they had a four-volume set. That's what everybody had, and it looked like this, Okay? And Rav Lechadzin had one like this. Everybody bought this, right? And this is basically Chelek Nezikin. Okay? And it's a lot more cumbersome. Like, you know, it's just not as easy to use as those. But you're not going to get rid of it. This is a shas you used when you were first learning Gemara, right? So it sits in my office. And, um, and there's a... There's a, a there, there are a number of small masechtot. Um, Pirke Avos, Avos to Rabbi Natan, and Kalarabati... And one of them is called uh, Masechet Machot, which is really a saginar, it's the antithesis. It's also called Avelut Rabati, which means the broader halachos of Avelus, of mourning. This is where you find the halachos of what to do in a case, God forbid, of suicide, halachos of giving a eulogy, the halachos of a shchiv mirah, a person who's on his deathbed, um, you know, makes a declaration, do you accept this legally, and all sorts of stuff like that. And in Masechet Machot, Right? And by the way, it's interesting this is here. It's always added on in the Gemara. You can find it here, right, at the end of Masechet, uh, at the end of the tractates of Nezikin, Baba Kama, Baba Metziah, Baba Basra, Sanhedrin, Avodah all the Masechetos in the section of damages, right? The, one of the six sections of Shas. Um, I actually asked Rav Palau. I was curious. Because I was thinking, why are these here at the end of Nezikin? So the simple explanation is, well, because, um, you know, Avos is at the end of Ezekiel because the damage you do to a person if you're unethical and it does to you makes sense it's in Ezekiel and once they had the small nazakas they put them all together right there could be a deeper idea you know it could be that you know all these things sort of are deeper ideas of damages and how we damage our souls so I asked Rebbe like what do you think he goes oh, I think it's probably the first it's just proximity I said oh you're such a brisker right but okay right Listen to this. This is scary. This is really scary. We're almost done. This is really scary. Right? Um, there's a few examples. I'm only going to give you one. Ma'ase betinok echad. Okay? Something happened with a child. Mi Bnei Brak from Bnei Brak. Who lived in Bnei Brak? Rabbi Akiva. Okay? Sheshavar tzlochit v'shabbat. He broke a plate on Shabbos. Right? Okay. And his father was obviously a Beherelo Aviv Ba'ozno. And his father, now his father wasn't going to do anything on Shabbos because if you hit your son on Shabbos and you portseya him, it could be Nisum Alacha, right? You know, you can't cause bleeding on Shabbos, right? So he whispers in his ear. Now what the implication here is, he says, you just wait till after Shabbos. You just wait. Right? Nisyare Me'aviv, he was afraid of his father. He, was, he spent the whole afternoon terrified what's going to be, Right? So he threw himself in a pit, he killed himself in a pit. Right? So they asked Rabbi Akiva, what should have been done here? What, what do we do with this? 
And Rabbi Kiva explains, Ein moni nemenu kol davar. You shouldn't have done anything. And the Gemara here, the, 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 the Allah here concludes, Mikan amru chachamim, Chazal say, Al yira'e adam letinok bozno, don't ever threaten a child. Elam malkeo miyad, if you got to give him a punishment, give it to him right away. If in this house, the woman is the rachmanit, and the father does the discipline, it wasn't exactly the case in our house, but okay. The wife should never say to the kid, just wait till your father gets home. Very unhealthy. Give him a consequence or don't give him a consequence. You want to wait till the husband gets home? Wait till, don't tell the kid, wait till the... There's, that fear is unhealthy. Right? Tokachar is a dangerous thing. And what the Gemara is implying is you have to take into account the consequences that come from Tokachar. But I want to add one more piece. By the way, the Kafa Chaim... Paskins this way. Kav Chaim was Rav Yaakov Chaim Sofer. He was a Talmud, lived at the end of the 1800s. He was a Talmud of the Ben Chaim. Right? We're not going to get to all this, but um, I'll tell you one more thing. Okay? Um, there's a whole discussion here about what prevents us from receiving Tochacha. That receiving Tochacha, that, that our honor prevents us. But we'll get to this in Hilchodeo. And for the alumni who are curious, you can chat me next week. But I will tell you one more thing. There's a famous story of the Chafetz Chaim. Chafetz Chaim is on a train. And the guy gets into onto the train and sits next to him. And he's on his way to Rodden. And he starts to make conversation with the fellow, the older man sitting next to him. And he says, uh, you know, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to Rodden. He says, I'm going to Rodden too. So the Chafetz Chaim says to him, why are you going to Rodden? Not a big place. He says, I'm actually going to, to see the Chafetz Chaim. I want to get a bracha from him because he's a holy tzaddik. And the Chafetz Chaim, who's uncomfortable being praised like that, says, well, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think he's not as great as Tzaddik as people think. This guy here is some old man putting down the Chafetz Chaim, and he goes bananas. He's screaming at him and yelling at him. Who are you to put down the Chafetz Chaim, the Gdol Ador? You know, you should be ashamed of yourself. Puh, he spits on him, I don't know. Depending on who tells the story, by the time you're done, he's beating him, I don't know, whatever happens. But it's not good. So of course they get to Rodden, and the guy figures out that he's talking to Chafetz Chaim. So he feels like this little, right? And he feels terrible, and he's like, Mishtatech, he's like, I feel so terrible, I'm sorry. Chafetz Chaim says, no, it's I who should be thanking you. You taught me a new halacha. I learned that a person isn't allowed to speak Lashon Hara, even about himself. Now let's think about this for a minute. Because tocha isn't only something you give to someone else. Sometimes you give yourself tochacha. You know, I can do better. I, I'm so foolish. I can't believe I blew this day. I went to Shear. You know, I spent over 10 years in Gush. And for every opportunity that I had to hear of Lechem I wonder how many opportunities I missed. How many times did I sit in the Shear with Lechem and it went over my head? How many times did I sitting on a Friday night and Lechem gave his Sikhan and went on and on and on and I just fell asleep? I missed Shear with Lechem Do you have any idea what I would give now? to go back and sit and hear a shir of Lechatzim. You know? Rav Blau, who lives in Alon Shut, um, when Rav Lechatzim had gotten ill and he wasn't really giving shiring dush, so Rav Lechatzim started to give a shir on Shabbos afternoon. Parsha. And people would go to hear the shir, like also to be Mechabit Rav Lechatzim. So Rav Blau happened to mention it once. I said, wait a second, he gives a shir in his home every Shabbos afternoon in Parsha? He goes, yeah. I had no idea. I want to come. So Blau said, okay, come, we'll go to the shir together. I said, that's amazing. 
But you know, that Shabbos of I wasn't there, the next Shabbos I was in America, and, then, and this went on for like a few months. And finally, you know, I decided like, okay, I'm not gonna wait for a blow, I wanna go here over and give share. So one Shabbos I walked over there, I didn't check if a blow was there for Shabbos, because that would have made it more special to also walk over the blow this year. I waited under Blau's corner for like a few minutes and I realized he wasn't showing up, so I went to the shear. And it was amazing, you know, he gave a shear and it was also very sad because it was towards the end of his life and, you know, I, I, I met him when he was like in his early 50s and now he was in his 80s and the difference was pretty pronounced. But it was still powerful to hear a shear from Wilkinson. And on the one end, and that was the last time I ever heard him give shear, a couple weeks later, it was also the last shear he gave, uh, his health took it for worse and a few weeks later he was nifter and um, and I beat myself up for a while like how many weeks could I have gone to hear him give shir and I just didn't go like you're giving yourself tocha that's a dangerous thing to do because sometimes when you give yourself tocha I know you're sitting in yeshiva can you imagine what it's like to sit in the presence of a vluchensin and to see a personality who's a kaon He's a girl at door. I, I never saw him do anything that I could criticize. He was an unbelievable Balmidos. And the way they, there were things we found out about him only when they were giving a spade. And his children gave a spade. And we had no idea. The chesed that he did, the way he gave stuck. It was unbelievable because he hit this rule. He didn't talk to people about this. And you're sitting in yeshiva and you feel like, how am I ever going to get there? Like you just feel small. And maybe somebody's hearing saying, I'm never going to be an Avni Nezer. I'm never going to be a Chafetz Chaim. I'm never going to be a Rav Gavriel. I'm never going to be a Rav David. How am I ever going to get there? And it's a form of tocha that's very dangerous. Because you get so focused on what you're not, you don't appreciate what you are. How do we start the day? We start the day with Modani. Modani. I'm thankful for Ani. Don't always think about how far you have to go. Think about how far you came. You know you have alumni who come into Yeshiva. And they haven't been here for you. And it's so easy to say, like, where I was when I left this place and where am I now? It's so easy. How could you not say that? You've been in Schwitzlarch and Chmeisnishland for, for... Of course you are. But that's a mistake. Because a year after being in Schwitzlarch, I did not spend a year in Schwitzlarch in secular college. Who knows if I ever would have made it back? You made it back. Like, you're here. You're learning. You know, you, you come from Rosh Hashanah. It's unbelievable. Do I realize where I am? Before you think about where you have to get to, think about where you came from. Think about where you are. Give yourself some shevach. Tochacha is a dangerous thing. And sometimes you need to push tochacha off a little bit. Because just like Yaakov could push Ruf anyway, we can push ourselves away. I'm never going to get there. What's the point? And then a boy feels like, I just, you know what? We'll finish with this. So you finish him a sechta. And you read this whole thing, and the right guy has this awesome minute. I don't know where it started, but you know, you read like, Anuratim Vehemratim. Right? Anuratim Vehemratim the Bersha. Everybody does this whole thing, right? Anu Amelim Vehemamelim. Anu Amelim Mekabun Sachar. Vehemamelim Vehemamelim Sachar. Right? Do you ever think about that? That makes no sense. Vehemamelim, they toil, they work at it, and they don't get any schar. That's not true. They work, they build a business, they get a lot of schar, they become millionaires. What does it really mean? First of all, they don't get schar for the amelos. In Olam Azeh, in the world of materialism, you only get reward for results. You could spend 
years building a business, if it doesn't take off, you end up with nothing. Not in the world of Torah. Look at the Rashi and Bechukotai. And Rashi there says, well, what does that mean? If you say it's mitzvah, so what's in Bechukotai? Rashi says, Amelos Patara. To toil in Torah. The schar is not because you learn the Tosos. You get schar for trying to learn the Tosos. You go to a shir and you put in the effort and you don't get it. You walk away from shir and believe me, for months I tried to chop Rav Lichten shir clearly. Just, what is going on? But the amelos is its own schar. So instead of thinking about the shir you didn't get, revel in the fact that you still keep going to shir. That's the challenge of tochah. When do I give tochah to myself and when do I put it off? There's a lot more to think about. A little piece of Torah from the world of Yaakov and Ruvain. I'm Parashat Vayashi. I'm outside.